Hey, welcome to Genesis. Uh, Really glad that you're here today. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 21. We're going to get there in a moment, but before we do, I just want to introduce myself. My name's Josh Tandy. I'm on staff here at Genesis. I get to work with the students uh, and lead the connection groups here. And today, we're going to be wrapping up a series. We're going to be wrapping up the series called Shattered. Now, this Shattered series, we've tried to do a lot of things with the other sermons and with the music and with the graphics and the video and just a couple other elements to try to really uh, hammer down and just kind of really focus in on some things, uh, mainly our brokenness. And so it's been kind of a heavy series. It's been kind of a, a difficult thing for us to talk through and, and to explore and to really look at our own lives. But uh, we're going to finish it today and, and hopefully we'll kind of bring it all to kind of one uh, nice big package. And so, but if we look at where we've been, I think in week one, we had a couple things that we heard. We heard, number one, that, that we are broken. You, know, you can look back at the garden and you can see how man has been in rebellion from God's plan since then. But you can also look in your own lives. You can look out into the, the world and read the paper or, or talk, to, talk to people and hear their stories to hear how uh, we really are broken. Uh, the second thing is that this brokenness uh, can only be fixed uh, through the work of Jesus. Uh, and this happens in kind of a, a process that we talked about last week. And it's a process of repenting, of releasing and replacing. We repent of our sin. We turn away from our sin. We change something in our lives. We release an idol. We have this this uh, thing that we're going after, we're chasing after, this thing that is somehow more important than God. And then ultimately, since we've released something, we've let go of something, there's now a void in our lives. We replace that void. We fill that void with God. And so repent, release, and replace has been kind of a, a big theme um, as we're moving forward. But like I said, this has been a pretty heavy series. Uh, It's been kind of a dark series as we talk about our brokenness. So I thought you might need a pick-me-up. I thought you might need uh, something to kind of make you smile, make you have some hope for for things. And bottom line, I'm on stage, you're not. I got the microphone, you don't. I can do whatever I want. So here here it is. On the screen, you'll see a nice picture. And that's my son, Isaac. Uh, Isaac's about uh, a month old or so. He's about two months old, actually, I should say. Uh, all together now, say aw. Yeah, that's Isaac. Um, and Isaac, he's pretty awesome. You know, that, you know Ike Tandy, he's, uh, he's very advanced. Um, uh, he's able to do some things that are pretty incredible for a two-month-old. Uh, and we don't even have to ask him to do it. I mean, he was, uh, was on my shoulder the other day before I came back on a Wednesday for high school small group, our connection group. And without asking him, without encouraging him, all on his own, he just threw up all over me. Now, he's, he's clearly very, very advanced. Uh, uh, but that's Isaac, and I, I haven't been able to, to, to preach since uh, he was born about seven weeks ago, and so uh, I wanted to share that with you guys. Uh, uh, but as hard as that may be to make that transition from the cuteness of my son, uh, we are wrapping up an important series today called Shattered. And one of the main questions we want to, to ask today, one of the things we want to address, is this idea of what now? What am I supposed to do now? In John chapter 21, we have a, a great case study, uh, kind of an example where, where some of this is played out, this repenting, releasing, and uh, replacing. It's the last chapter of this gospel. Uh, Jesus has already been uh, betrayed by his closest friends. He's been been arrested. He's been uh, beaten and tortured. He's been put on a cross. He's been executed very publicly. He's been thrown into this this borrowed 
tomb, this cave where they buried folk uh, back then, and, and three days after being put in there with a large rock rolled in front and Roman professional soldiers standing out front, Jesus walks out very much alive, uh, very much well, alive, resurrected. Jesus is now, once dead, now alive. And during those three days, it must have been pretty rough for Peter. See, Peter was this guy who was the leader of the 12 disciples. He was the one who had really kind of been the the focal point. He was the voice of the 12. And Peter, when Jesus had told them that he was going to be arrested, betrayed, and executed, and crucified, Peter was one of the first ones to stand up and say, No, I'm not going to let this happen. And Jesus responds by telling him that you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me. Three times you're going to do this. And sure enough, three times between the time that, that Jesus was, was arrested to the when he was executed, Peter said he didn't know him. Three different times, a couple times by a, a small girl, someone comes up to him and says, you're that guy who was following this Jesus around. And Peter said, no, no, I've never done this. And so what we have is a situation where Peter has probably repented of his sin. See, Peter has realized his sin of denying Christ. He's realized what he's done is wrong, and he's, he's trying to change that. He's trying to be forgiven, trying to move past that. Peter also is releasing an idol. See, I think Peter thought that the grand finale for this whole thing with Jesus was some sort of political takeover, some sort of coup. And Peter, being the leader of the Twelve, would be elevated to some sort of position of power, authority, a general in an army, secretary of state, you know, some sort of like vice president, some sort of cabinet position. So Peter has to release this idea that this is how things are going to end. He has to begin to accept the fact that that's not how things turned out. And then he has to replace this life of his, this life where he was always moving towards power and authority, And he replaces it by returning to something he already knew. He replaces it by becoming a fisherman. Now, I think that's kind of interesting how we all do this. Something happens in our life that is hard or difficult, and we return to something that we know. We we go back. You know, maybe in our careers, we've we've tried something. Maybe we're a small business owner. We stepped out on our own. It didn't work out, and so we went back to the job we had before. You know, maybe we've moved past a relationship, but once we've moved past and we find that we really miss that companionship, we want to return to maybe a negative relationship from our past. You know, I think about times with God where we are very close with God and we, we feel like we have these mountaintop experiences. And then for whatever reason, things begin to change and things don't feel the same. And we try to recreate those experiences by doing the same things, attending the same events, going through the motions that we had when we were connecting with God. And so Peter is doing something similar. So Peter is out fishing. He's, he's had all this uh, incredible experiences with Jesus. He's had all these disappointing, very disheartening experiences with Jesus, seeing him crucified. And he's out there fishing. And as they're fishing, on the shore appears a man. And this man calls out to him and says, have you caught anything? He says, no, we haven't caught anything. He says, well, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. They throw their nets on the other side of the boat, and they catch this huge, huge catch of fish. They can't even bring it into the boat. And it's kind of this replay of an earlier miracle that Jesus had. And immediately at this point, it clicks with Peter that the man standing on the beach is Jesus. And I don't know how, and I don't know why, but that's Jesus. And so Peter, who kind of has this, the impulsive nature of a Labrador puppy, jumps out of the boat and starts swimming to shore. And there's kind of this, this awkward scene where the other guys in the boat are like, look, dude, we, we need you. We're all going that direction, but we got to get back there. And so you got to get back in the boat. So Peter's got to climb back in the boat, and then they finally get to the beach. And we pick up this story 
in verse 15 of chapter 21. It'll be on the screens. You can follow along in your Bibles if you have it. But John chapter 21, verse 15 says this. It says, After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now Peter was hurt that Jesus asked this question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. See, Jesus is restoring Peter. He's not only forgiving Peter, he's restoring him to this position of leadership. Peter denied him three times. He's forgiven three times. But then immediately after this, this awesome, incredible thing, something interesting happens. Something interesting happens because Peter turns around and says this, picking up in verse 20. Peter turned around and saw behind the disciple Jesus' love, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Now this, this person they're referencing is John, the author of this gospel. Peter asked Jesus, what about him? What about John? Jesus replied in verse 22, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So picture, if you will, the situation here. Peter, who is probably incredibly despondent, wrapped with guilt, experiences this moment of forgiveness, of restoration, of relief, knowing that Jesus, who he saw died, is now alive is not upset with him, in fact, embraces him and allows him to return to what he knew, this true message of the kingdom, to return to becoming a a leader in what will become the early church. And Peter, less than five minutes after this happens, is worried about John. Is worried about what John's going to do. He's worried about his rival. He's worried about the one that he sees as a threat to his leadership. See, Peter is worried about what's going to happen to someone else and misses the fact that Jesus is offering him everything. And Jesus actually responds pretty harshly. You can almost hear that indignant sarcasm. That, what's it to you? What does it matter to you what I do with him? If I want to make him live forever, that should not change anything. It shouldn't matter what I do with him. You need to focus on what I'm trying to do with you. I think Jesus is frustrated here because Peter can't see the big picture. In the middle of this incredible moment, he's concerned about someone else. Peter's comparing himself. Peter's dealing with jealousy with with John. He isn't satisfied. Now, maybe you and I have more in common with Peter than we realize. You know, you admit your brokenness. You're in the process of repentance, of releasing things, of of replacing things. You're, You're moving towards the ultimate goal we're all looking for of transformation, to be made new in Christ, to be made different. But you don't feel as though much is happening. There's no transformation happening in your life because you can't stop listening to the others, to the critics, to those who are bringing you down. You want to be transformed, but nothing happens. And all throughout this series, we've been talking about this broken mirror. This broken, shattered mirror that when you look in your reflection, you see uh, refracted images and, and distorted picture of yourself. And we talked about how in our brokenness, we, this is what we see of ourselves. We see ourselves as incomplete and uh, we can't really make sense of it. 
And we talked about how as, as, as broken people who were repenting and, and releasing things and, and ultimately replacing them with God, that, that mirror gets put back together. But maybe for you, the mirror is whole. God has made, done the incredible work of allowing you to see your true self as he created you. But you're still somehow stuck. And I think the issue here is that, in fact, the mirror may be complete, but there's someone holding the mirror. There's someone holding the mirror who is telling you what they see. There's some sort of critic. There's some sort of person there who's bringing you down and pointing out your flaws. The issue is the fact that someone is telling you what they see and they're lying. I heard a story about the legendary coach and Purdue grad, John Wooden, who won 10 NCAA basketball titles. He was the coach of UCLA. He's probably one of the greatest coaches, if not the greatest coach ever. But it was said that part of Wooden's success wasn't his recruitment, wasn't getting great players, wasn't his, his coaching of players on the floor during the game. Because, in fact, Wooden, as a game coach, was not very intrusive. He didn't call a timeout after every possession at the end of a game. He really let the game play out, let his players figure it out because he had prepared them to do just that. But it said that he would spend more time focusing on the players on his bench during the game than those on the floor. If a shot was missed, he would turn to one of the guards on the bench and he'd say, when you get in there, no way you're missing that shot. If one of his stars made a bad pass or got beat on defense, he would turn to someone sitting next to him and says, when you get in there, there's no way you're going to let that happen. You're going to make that pass every time. And one guy who sat at the bench for UCLA recalls a time when he did finally get in the game. This moment where he realized he was going to play. And he said it was at uh, Michigan State. He says, I remember the first time I took the court. And I was there in East Lansing, and I wondered whether when I got in, if I would be too nervous to play or too scared to function. But when I walked on the court of East Lansing, after sitting on the bench with Coach Wooden, I felt only one emotion. It was pity. I pitied the players at Michigan State. See, Coach Wooden had made me feel so confident that my game, that I got in the game and I was convinced I was the greatest player ever to set foot on a basketball court. And then I realized, these poor MSU players, they've invited their parents to this game. They've invited their friends. They've invited their girlfriends to this game. And I'm about to embarrass them. See, John Wooden was, an only a, was not only a great coach, he understood a bit about sociology and psychology. The, there was this principle that Dr. Charles Cooley, a sociologist, came up with, and he termed it the looking glass self. And at, at the core of this, the concept of looking glass self basically says that you will see yourself the way you think the most important person in your life sees you. In essence, the person you care about most acts like a mirror. And how they see you, and how, and how you see them seeing you, is like looking into a mirror. So the idea is, whoever you care about most, they have the power to tell you who you are. But sometimes, though, we listen to the wrong person. We give the wrong person authority. I think that's what's going on with Peter, and I think, to a degree, I think I can understand this rivalry that clouds our, our perception. See, when, I'm a, when, I, when you're 12 and you're in the fifth grade... Little League is a big deal. And for me, it was the deal. It was the thing. I lived for baseball. And as a Little Leaguer, as a, as a 12-year-old, it's when you first start to really get competitive. It's when you really start to understand what's going on and you start to really, uh, at least for me, become driven to win. 
And there's a problem, see, because they were the Blue Jays and we were the White Sox. And my nemesis, my enemy, John, was on the Blue Jays. And John was pitching that day. Now, John was a better athlete. John was more popular. John had a girlfriend. He had asked Haley out. This girl I'd been thinking about asking out, trying to get the courage to ask, up, ask out for weeks. And it was opening day and John was pitching. And I couldn't wait to face John to defeat my enemy. Now, opening day in Franklin Township Little League in Wanamaker was a big day. It was a big day. It was a, first, it was a Saturday often in, in April. It was often cold and sometimes rainy. And you would parade through the cosmopolitan, very bustling, very vibrant downtown Wanamaker you know, with your team and your uniform and the felt banner with your name ironed onto it along with your team and your number and your sponsor and all that other fun stuff. And you're, you're throwing candy to the throngs of fans, but that day the parade didn't mean much to me because I can only focus on that 10 a.m. first pitch when we got to face the Blue Jays and John. So the game finally comes around, and we are the visiting team. So the top of the first, I come up to the bat. And I'm standing there, and John's standing on the mound, and I'm just gearing up. I can't wait to vanquish my enemy. And a ball comes down the middle, and somehow I rip a double into right center field that bounces off the wall. And I remember standing at second base feeling like a giant, feeling 10 feet tall, feeling like I'm going to beat him. We're going to beat this guy. I'm going to show him how awesome I am. But my euphoria didn't even last a half half inning. Because in the bottom of the first, John being their best player, he was batting third or fourth. He steps up to the plate and John just obliterates a ball. Like a line drive that just kept rising. It cleared the fence with plenty of room and landed well past a three-run homer. We're down three to one in the first inning. And I don't remember much about the rest of the game. I remember that we lost, and I remember the good game line. You know the good game line that at the end of the game, the two teams line up by home plate, and they have to tell the other team, each team member, good game. It's something, you know, society forces on us or something. It's, you know, this sportsmanship, and your parents you know, want you to be a good little boy, so you do this. And you want to go to the concession stand afterwards, so this is, this is the thing standing in the way. And so I'm standing at the end of the good game line, and I'm sulking, I'm pouting like a, like a 12-year-old who's, who's just lost the most important game of his life. And John was toward the end of his line, and so I'm kind of, good game, good game, good game, whatever. And finally, John comes up, and he says, he says to me, before I can even say a word or avoid him or get away, he says, hey, Tandy, great double in the first. I thought for sure that was going to clear the fence. I thought you'd taken me yard. I'll see you Monday. And I thought to myself, what a jerk. What a jerk that he has to rub it in my face right now. He's got the girl. He's the better athlete. He won the game. And now he's going to tell me, ah, this guy. But it's true, right? Like, it's, it's true how we paint people with this picture that, you know, they're our enemy when, in fact, there's, there's nothing like that going on. It's really just ourself we're comparing them to. All I can think about was besting this guy, but he was really my friend. You know, I was, I was missing the point that I'm 12 and I'm playing baseball and I don't really have any worries in life. I'm, I'm 12 and, I, I, you know, it's Saturday and we're about to go to the concession stand and I'm going to go home and worry about what? I'm going to worry about what's on TV. I'm going to worry about playing and hanging out with my friends. But because I didn't measure up against somebody else, I only saw my flaws. That's a kind, of, kind of a silly example of this looking glass principle. But, but sometimes it, it takes on a, a, a story that's kind of rather sad. Now, I'm sure many of you, or I assume all of us really, are familiar with U2, the band U2. Great, 
great band, one of the, one of the biggest bands uh, on the planet. And the lead singer, Bono, tells a story. He tells a story about playing a show with his dad in the audience. He says, I had an amazing moment with my old man the first time I came to America. He recalls, it was in Texas. And at soundcheck, I organized with the lighting people to put a spotlight on him during the encore. I said, this is the man who gave me my voice. This is Bob Houston. The light came on, 20,000 Texans hooting at him. And he stood up and he just waved a fist at me. After the show, I heard these footsteps behind me and I looked around and it was my dad. His eyes were watering. And I thought, this is it. This is the moment. The moment I've been waiting for my entire life. My father was finally going to tell me that he loved me. And he walked up. And he put his hand out. It was a little shaky, a little unsteady. I think he'd had a few drinks, but he looked me in the eye and he said, Son, you are very professional. He goes on to talk about how much that hurt. He goes on to talk about how much he still lives with this. That all he wanted was his dad to tell him that he loved him. He wanted his dad's approval, his affirmation. He wanted his dad's praise. And all he got was, Son... You're very professional. So the question is, is who is holding your mirror? The person holding that mirror is the person who holds the approval we want. This is a person we love, we respect, maybe we fear, maybe we uh, compare ourselves to this person, or some combination thereof. This is a person that's holding the mirror that we know very well. This person has what we want. We realize how much influence others have on our lives when their reactions don't meet our expectations. Bono wanted more from his dad after the show. Maybe it was your parents who missed something that you did that you were really proud of. The boss who could give you a raise gives a co-worker credit for the project you worked on. Someone from your past who told you that you would be a failure or embarrassed you or made you feel like an outcast. And to this day... You walk into a room and you're fixated on whether or not the people there are going to accept you. Or there isn't a person holding your mirror, but an idol, an idea, an image, a a goal of success, of, of health, of money, of security, of family, of smart kids, of kids who who are successful in life. And this comparison game that ensues becomes a trap. So at the end of the school year, your kids come home with their certificates and awards, but you see the neighbor kids got quite a few more. You know, your kid who's who's trying out for the team is crushed when they get cut. But you're a little bit more crushed than even they are. You think you did really well on a test until you see what the score your neighbor got. Your house didn't feel as small until you visited their house, and your car didn't feel as old until you took a ride with them. And maybe you can't identify any one person. Maybe for you it changes from time to time. It's just whoever you're around, it's kind of everyone is holding the mirror. They're always, always kind of gauging yourself against someone else. And this is this horrible cycle that we find ourselves in, always concerned with the approval of others. And if you think you're immune to this, you think you don't, I don't care what other people think about me. Have you ever seen a picture of yourself and thought, man, that's not a good, good picture of me? You ever detagged a picture of yourself on Facebook? Have you ever thought to yourself, I'm not sure if I want to go out there and dance. You hesitated at a wedding to get on the dance floor. You wanted to see who else was going to go first. 
Or maybe you've just had a dream. A dream in which you are missing a certain important article of clothing. And you found yourself in a public place. You're you're concerned about what other people think about you. And for us, everyone, and for us, and for each of us, someone's holding our mirror. It's just a question of who. So what do we do? How do we move past this? I think the first thing is that we replace by following. See, this is what Jesus tells Peter to do in John chapter 21. But this isn't the first time he was this clear. You know, in John chapter 21, Jesus is telling Peter, okay, you love me, you're restored, just follow me now. But people were asking Jesus questions all the time. Jesus, he was a rabbi. And the rabbis kind of held the keys to the mirror that was being held by the law for most Jews. See, the law, all 613 laws, commandments from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, was what every Jew was comparing themselves to. They were always feeling like, how can I live out the law better? How can I find ways around the law through an interpretation? How can I live up to this, the standard that God has put in front of me? So as a rabbi, Jesus was commonly asked for his interpretation. And one day, Jesus was asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And we have his response in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus is very clear. He's very direct. He's very, very blunt. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, maybe you've heard those words before, or or maybe not, but regardless, when you hear these words, what's your reaction? Now, for me, there's something very simple and beautiful about that, but at times, there's also something very daunting about this. There's something very daunting in the idea that, oh, I just have to love God with everything I have all the time. That's really hard. That's impossible. And so... It makes me not even want to try sometimes. It makes me apathetic. I've heard other people react and say, it sounds like God is an incredibly needy person who has to be the center of attention and, and, and just needs our love. Love me. Love me. Love me is what he's saying over and over again. You know, so how do you hear these words? And it really does matter. Jesus says this is the most important commandment. What's your reaction to the greatest commandment, the most significant commandment? This commandment we need to pay attention to. Well, as I was working on this message, it hit me. Maybe it doesn't matter to God if we love him. I I know God loves us. I know God wants to be in relationship with us. But I don't think God has a bad day if someone turns their back on him. I don't think that God wakes up and says, oh, they're not loving me as much today. I think God desires to be with us, wants to be with us. But it's not as if. God needs us to love him. He wants it, but he doesn't need it. See, what if God is trying to help us have him, be in relationship with him, to saying, I want you to experience the fullness of my love, the fullness of me in relationship, and the way to do that is for you to love me so you can receive my love back. See, God just doesn't give it. We don't just give it. It's a relationship that goes back and forth. See, God doesn't need us to love him. But when we do love him, we fully experience love. And transformation begins there. And if God is a person, if God is the person I care about most, what he reflects back to me, what he says about me, defines me. It really matters. 
This is some of the things that he says about you. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, he says, For I have loved you with an everlasting love. Romans 5, 9 says, When we were at our worst, imagine the worst sin you've made, the one sin you don't want anyone to know about. When we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son. See, Jesus looks at us and he loves us. When we begin to realize that when that sinks in, it is life-changing. We realize that God sees us as his loved children. It doesn't matter what anyone else sees. And hopefully that's you. And maybe for you right now, you're beginning to realize it's clicking that God loves you. See, Jesus got mad when expectations beyond love were put on people. He didn't get mad when people screwed up. He didn't get mad at our brokenness and our shattered lives. He got mad when people were given more than what was expected. He, gave, he got mad when people were trying to take advantage of the poor people that were coming to the temple to make a sacrifice. When they were price gouging and playing on people's guilt. Because ultimately, God loves us and he's not asking, he's not asking for anything beyond our love back. And that's when transformation starts. But maybe you're still struggling. You say, I'm repenting. I'm releasing of my idols. I'm replacing these things with God. I, I understand that God loves me. And in fact, I love him back. But transformation still isn't happening. Maybe for you, you need to hear this. Author Brennan Manning brings up a great point. He says, in a moment of naked honesty, ask yourself, do I wholeheartedly trust that God likes me? Not loves me. Because theologically, God can't do otherwise. And do I trust that God likes me? That he likes me not after I clean up my act and eliminate every trace of sin, selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love. Not after I develop a disciplined prayer life and spend 10 years in Calcutta with Mother Teresa's missionaries. But in the moment right now, right here, with all my faults and weaknesses. If you can answer without hesitation, oh yes, God does love me. In fact, he's very fond of me. Then you're beginning to live in the wisdom of accepted tenderness. You could say that God has to love you. But God does not love you out of obligation. I read in Philippians chapter 2, one of the earliest church songs, one of the earliest hymns from the early church ever recorded is, is in Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, this song speaks of and sings of the fact that God made the willful decision to come to earth in the form of Jesus so we could understand him. You know, I read the Gospels and over and over again, I see how Jesus makes intentional moves that will eventually take him to the cross. I think of Jesus on the cross, this Jesus who healed the blind, who made the lame walk, who, 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 who fixed the disabled, who, who allowed them to be healthy and whole and complete, who walked on water, who multiplied food, who understood people's deepest, darkest thoughts and desires and, and fears. I think of that Jesus, and I think that he could have overcome a couple nails in some timber. That if Jesus really wanted to, he could have, could have gotten off the cross. And even in that moment where he's crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I alone in this? What's the point? How is this ending? Because of love, he goes through with it. Because of love, he lays down his life for you and for me. See, God doesn't just love you. He delights in you. Hear this from Psalm 149.4. Very simple, very direct. It says, For the Lord delights in you. 
See, transformation happens through love. Transformation begins when we realize that God delights in us and that he is pursuing us, not just because he loves us, but because he likes us. He likes us enough to come down, to get his hands dirty, to experience pain, suffering, and betrayal. And because of this work of transformation, because this is what it's all about, this kingdom, this idea of living, this way of life that Jesus is always speaking about, it's about transformation. It's about being made new. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you're following Jesus, if you believe Jesus, if you've accepted him, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. See, it's over. It's done. You are a new creation. You aren't what you did. You aren't what you haven't done. You're new. And you belong to Christ because, of, because he came and paid the price that we all owed. He came in our place. He set this incredible example of love and a way of life. And the transformation happens when we embrace these truths. It began when Jesus walked out of that cave. And it begins time and time again as we turn to him in love. And that freedom that we experience in this new life with Christ is where it doesn't matter who has held our mirror in the past. It doesn't matter how our mirror was broken. Because God does put the mirror back together, but he does something much more than repair. He makes it new. He gives you something that will last forever. He puts it back together perfectly. So ultimately, all that matters, all that matters is how God sees us. And this is how God sees you. Hear these scriptures. Hear, hear these words from the Bible. It says, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Zephaniah three seventeen. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. In Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. See, God sees you as perfect, as complete. He doesn't see your flaws or mistakes. He doesn't see the sin in your life because he's already cleaned it. He doesn't see what you haven't done, the missed opportunities. He sees you as perfect. Because no matter how broken or how shattered your life is, Jesus says, if you're with me, if you love me, your life is made new. And it's not because he has to do this. It's because he's choosing to. He delights in you. He likes you. He loves you. And for you right now, in, the, in your brokenness, it can all be made new through the incredible power and grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.